This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation for you with Liz Wheeler. She is the host of The Liz Wheeler Show. You can find it at lizwheelershow.com. She's also someone who has been a strong voice when it comes to her views on a number of different conservative policy issues over the years. Uh, she is someone who I respect deeply for those social conservative views. We get her take on a number of different developments in the Republican coalition, what happened in the 2022 midterms, where the pro-life movement goes from here and more. Liz Wheeler coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Liz Wheeler, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk to you about a number of different things. But first off, I wanted to ask you about kind of the position uh, as you see it for conservatives in the wake of the midterm elections, what they can view as maybe positive silver linings that they got out of it, but also things that you think they ought to be reconsidering in the wake of what was for many conservatives a disappointing outcome. It was. I mean, I can speak personally. I was disappointed. I was hoping for and expecting a bigger red wave than we saw. Fortunately, we held on to the House. Um, these postmortems are always interesting because it's easy to sit here and criticize what went wrong. But I do think that we should start with one thing that went right, one thing that Republicans have done very well over the last two years, and that is winning public opinion on many hot-button cultural topics. I'm talking about the school-related issues, school choice, parental rights when it comes to their children's curriculum. I'm talking about critical race theory. I'm talking about queer theory, which is the underpinning of the transgender ideology. And then economic issues, whether it's inflation, whether it's gas prices, whether it's exorbitantly priced groceries. If you look at the polls, the vast majority of the American people, including Democrats, were are unhappy with what Biden has done to our country in the past two years, and they agree with Republican positions. This is a very good thing because Republicans have not historically always won public opinion on um, we've not been as good at the as the Democrats at messaging people, meeting people where we're at. And I, I think a good place to start with analyzing the 2022 midterms is that we did that right. We won the public opinion both against the Democrat president, but also in favor of our positions, positions that serve the country well. 
that's the good news. The bad news is, of course, well, how do you marry that concept with the fact that we did not see the red tsunami? What what happened? There's something missing there. And I think this is an area that is fraught with not just disagreement, but in-party fighting. It's fraught with tension because you say the word fraud or you say the word fraudulent and immediately, not just the mainstream media, but a lot of Republicans jump to, oh, conspiracy theories, you know, hashtag stolen election, all of that. But there is a huge distinction between fraud and fraudulent. Mm. And if I may give an example here, fraud is like if I walk into a polling place and say, I'm actually Joe Smith, I'm not Liz Wheeler, I'd like to cast a ballot and I lie, that's a fraudulent vote or that's a, that's outright fraud. But fraudulent electioneering would be a, a voter who is a valid voter, someone who is legally allowed to cast a ballot, who um, because the election laws or procedures have been changed, their ability to cast a ballot or their vote is counted um, because of these procedures, making it a contrast to, say, a previous election where had they cast a ballot in that way, that vote would not have been counted because it wasn't a validly cast ballot, even if the voter was was valid. And this, I think, is what we saw in the 2022 midterms. We saw Republicans win public opinion. We saw discontent with Biden. But we saw this uh, electioneering, these rules changes, these procedure changes that happened at the state level that caused, you know, the 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 election itself not to necessarily be fair. Mm -hmm. In terms of the reaction from Republicans to a lot of these policies that the states have made, um, there seems to be a split in opinion. Mm -hmm. Some Republicans seem to be saying, uh, you know, we really need to redouble our efforts and fight these COVID uh, era policies tooth and nail. Others are basically saying these are not going away uh, and we need to instead adopt an early voting strategy just to compete on the same terms that the Democrats are competing on. I'm curious as to your own opinion of that. And I would just add there was an early vote strategy among uh, a lot of different Republican candidates, particularly ones who were very successful. Uh, Greg Abbott had an early vote strategy. Ron DeSantis had an early vote strategy. Their campaigns you know, sort of leaned into that. The contrast being there were a lot of campaigns that did the opposite and sort of redoubled down, you know, doubled down on the idea that, you know, no election day is a day. You should show up. You should stand in line, wait and, and vote. Uh, and now there seems to be, you know, some questioning of that, whether that was the right approach to have. My answer would be both. Mm -hmm. Right. We have seen what was historically election day, one day where you walk in, cast your ballot in person. We've seen that change into election season. And a lot of us recognize that that's not a good thing, that 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 creates vulnerability for fraud that also it also disenfranchises voters, right? This was my original years ago. My original position against early voting is that voters don't have all the information that they might need. Think about a presidential election in, in early November think about Pennsylvania. and John Yes. Letterman, you know? Or the October surprises. Think about 2016 with James Comey, yeah. that one of the most highly Googled searches in the lead up to that election was, can I change my vote? Because people who had cast an early vote for Hillary Clinton wanted to change away from her because they realized she was corrupt. Mm -hmm. Um, so it disenfranchises voters, but I think you can you can acknowledge both. You can say, I'd like to, as a Republican apparatus, a Republican party, I'd like to change, restore election day and get rid of election season, but it's foolish and it is incompetent if while you are trying to affect that change, if you ignore the fact that the Democrats have built up an apparatus of early voting, if you don't compete with them. We will never win back the seats necessary to actually change election, election season back to election day if we don't build up an early voting apparatus. We have to do both. Mm -hmm.
what is your opinion on ranked choice voting and do you think it's constitutional? I think it's terrible. I think it 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 it's a nightmare. Look what happened in Alaska. Yeah. It it I I don't quite understand why any Republican would support this. I do understand why Democrats would support this. Yes. Yes. <laughs> because it is one of those things that I would term electioneering that perhaps in and of itself it's maybe not illegal, but it is a way of making the process more convoluted. It's a way of diluting the power of the individual vote. I don't think it's advisable. I think what Alaska and Maine are the two prime examples yes. of that. Um, and no, I, I, I don't support it. As for whether it's constitutional, I, I'm not sure if it's constitutional, but even if it is, it's inadvisable. Yeah. You know, it does seem to be something that is designed to prevent populist outsider candidates from having success certainly against the you know already you know uh, institutional candidates who uh, who people in some of these cases i think uh, you know purposefully advocate for ranked choice voting because they want to like they would like to see them defended there's going to be obviously a lot of after action on this uh, and people are pointing fingers everywhere they're starting to move out of that mindset and move on toward, you know, what is going to happen in the coming uh, month with, uh, you know, the new Republican House and things of that nature, the speaker fight potentially. But one of the things that uh, seems clearly cemented in the minds of the corporate leftist media and one that they want to cement in the minds, I think, of Republicans is that the fundamental ideological issue that decided this election was abortion, that it was the Dobbs decision and that uh, this is going to kill Republicans in terms of their hopes in a lot of key states that uh, Democrats were able to, you know, get out the vote on college campuses and in towns and particularly among young single women in ways that uh, that really prevent Republicans being able to appeal uh, in those markets. What is your response to that thesis, which is basically being echoed by every media yeah. entity that isn't on the right? Two points. First of all. If it caused us to lose an election, I don't care. Yeah. This is a moral absolute. This is fundamental right and wrong. This is life and death. So if overturning Roe v. Wade lost us one midterm election, I don't give a tiny rat's tail. <laughs> you know, you know, when there was a there was a headline uh, two months ago, I think, three months ago uh, in, in uh, Politico uh, that was uh, – the headline was something about Dobbs' regret. And of course, yeah. all the quotes were from Republican, unnamed Republican consultants, right? And uh, that kind of thing. And and I remember it being passed around, and every pro-lifer I know going, "We don't Who care. Is this? We don't care. No, we don't care." But the second thing is, it's actually not what it's portrayed to be. Surprise, surprise! The Democrats and the mainstream media are intentionally mischaracterizing it. And for this, I blame Republicans. I blame Republican candidates because what the Democrats did successfully is they took abortion. And they branded it not as abortion, meaning not what is abortion? What does abortion do to an unborn baby? What is the abortion procedure? What is the outcome of this? What is the impact it has on the mother? They didn't talk about the what it is of abortion. They branded abortion as contraception. They branded abortion as ectopic pregnancy. And they branded abortion as rape and incest, particularly the the atrocity that happened to that 10-year-old child in the state of Ohio. And Republicans just let this happen. They didn't push back on this. They didn't say, wait a second, not only are you lying about ectopic pregnancy, of course ectopic pregnancy care mm -hmm. is legal. Not only are you mischaracterizing Republicans' position on life of the mother or, or rape and incest or contraception, for goodness sakes, mm -hmm. but 
you're ignoring the heart of the matter, which is describe to me what an abortion procedure is. Describe to me when life begins. I didn't see any Republican. Maybe I'm wrong here. You can correct me if there's someone out there who um, was doing this and I missed them. But I cannot think of a single high level Republican who was out there saying, no, this is a lie. This is wrong. Don't define our position with a lie. This is what's true. There was a, a situation back in uh, in uh, in the Virginia gubernatorial election between Ken Cuccinelli uh, and Terry McAuliffe years and years ago, where Cuccinelli, having had one of the strongest pro-life records when he was a state legislator, uh, you know, is going up against a, a radically pro-abortion candidate in, in McAuliffe. But Cuccinelli, once he won the nomination, was advised by a lot of Republicans, hey, you're running in a purple state. You're trying to win a very competitive election. You should basically stop talking about the pro-life issue, even though it's been something that you've talked about throughout your career. And what that did was, of course, it completely allowed McAuliffe to do whatever he wanted to do with the issue, yeah. define Cuccinelli according. Now, he ended up almost pulling it out. He, he lost by just a, a handful of, of percentage points in part because of the of the uh, Ted Cruz effort to uh, get rid of Obamacare, which uh, sparked a lot of backlash in the uh, in the D.C. bureaucrat community, which uh, controls so much of Virginia. But one of the big takeaways afterwards was that seeding that ground was a mistake. Yes. And I feel like they're making the same mistake now and made the same mistake. They are. They allowed Democrats to define the terms of what, you know, being pro-choice means. And they seemed unwilling to engage on the issue. How does that change? How do we make these politicians actually willing to fight on something that they seem so uncomfortable talking about? This isn't just something for politicians, though. That's the first thing to recognize. This is something that the Republican National Committee is supposed to be taking a leadership role on. I mean, what's what's the purpose of the RNC? The purpose is fundraising, election strategy, a platform, and branding. And they've completely neglected their role on this. I mean, every Republican consultant who essentially runs the campaigns of every of every elected member of the of Congress and the Senate were strongly advising against candidates and incumbents from even talking about or celebrating this tremendous victory from the Supreme Court, this tremendous victory from uh, for life over abortion. And the RNC has fallen short so many times. I, I talked about on my show, I talked about how the RNC chair elections sound so boring, right? So humdrum. Who cares who the chair of the RNC is? Most people don't even know. Mm-hmm. Definitely don't care. However, It's an incredibly, perhaps the most overlooked but critical part of our election strategy for 2024, because if we don't have an apparatus at the RNC that controls so much money, controls candidates, controls the platform of the party and the branding, then we're not going to be effective in fighting back against our political enemy. And I say political enemy not because I'm trying to characterize Democrats as enemies, but because the ideology that the Democrats are propagating is an ideology of Marxism, and that is an enemy ideology. And if the RNC doesn't get its act together, if we don't get someone in charge of the RNC that basically can do to the RNC what Elon Musk is doing to Twitter, entirely clean house, I don't see that we will change this. So one of the big things that I hear from Republicans whose uh, whose opinions I generally trust because they've been more successful in terms of their recent campaigns, you know, on the consultant side of things, is that they're, they don't have a lot of confidence uh, in the RNC, you know, not just from that branding perspective that you're talking about, but just in a nuts and bolts way that yeah. they feel like things just the the approaches that they use are not useful or don't work that they that the data that they get is not really 
you know, viable or trustworthy, that they have to kind of replicate things themselves on the state level. Um, And that to me sounds like the kind of job that you would really need to have someone with a, a, a granular knowledge of the way that that works. That doesn't necessarily seem to be what we're currently getting in terms of the current leadership, but also maybe in terms of the people who are going to vie for it. Who would you like to see step forward if they haven't already? Um, well, first of all, Ronna Romney McDaniel, I think she's been in that seat since 2017. I have nothing personal against her. I don't think that she has adequately achieved the goals that the well, RNC needs to achieve. This is also a fairly long tenure in terms of RNC. It is. Now, yeah, so. since 2017. That's yeah. a long time. I mean, these elections will take place in January. There's um, there's Harmeet Dillon, who is a very well-known attorney. Um, she's been at the forefront, actually, of the legal defense against the legal abuse inflicted by the left on conservatives. Actually, I say this kind of laughingly because I think she's great, and I think that she has uh, at least achieved my my baseline level of are you competent to run for this role? Because my question for this, my first screening question for a candidate here is, do you understand the reality of the political enemy that we face? Because if you don't, we won't fight against them well. Yeah. And I think that she has proved through her actions um, that she does understand that. I I have a whole list of questions for candidates <laughs> because I think that we shouldn't we shouldn't ever just latch onto a candidate because we like them. We should make sure that we interview them. We're hiring them. Even though the RNC chair that is not elected directly by us, they represent us as Republicans. We should take part in this. Um, I think Harmeet would be great. She has not only taken part in the legal defense against legal abuse. She's been involved in election security related things in in the nuanced way, the way that you look at the procedures that were changed without authority in states that led to this this well, this this early voting apparatus that the left has. We have Lee Zeldin who ran a an admirable but unsuccessful bid for governor of New York. I I would like to hear more from him um, about what his platform is, what he would do specifically related to branding. I feel like Harmeet has a different skill set than Lee Zeldin does because Lee Zeldin proved in his gubernatorial run that he knows how to speak to demographics of voters who aren't maybe your stereotypical Republican. And he was able to get a lot of those voters on his side. So that's very good for branding and for platform. But I don't know. I mean, either of those two would be fine. I'm leaning towards Harmeet right now, but I'm never on anyone's team when it comes to politicians. So let's shift for a moment to the kind of thing uh, that you've mentioned a little bit, but I'd like to hear more from uh, from you about the culture war side of this. The culture war side of this is that I know that you care very deeply and personally about. But I also feel like when it comes to Republican solutions, they have a little bit of the same problem that they do with the inflation problem, where there were a lot of people who were upset about the inflation experience Mm -hmm. that they've had, but they never really offered them a solution, you know, other than saying we're going to block vastly more spending uh, from the Biden administration that has spent so much taxpayer money in its first two years uh, with a Democrat in the Congress. Rather than, you know, offering uh, any kind of real solution that could convince voters that they would be able to see real change under Republican leadership, I feel like, again, on these culture war topics, with some exceptions, most of the things that Republicans do is just designed to kind of critique what the Democrats are doing, say, look at this, isn't it crazy, as opposed to actually taking any steps that would result in different behavior from either the corporations involved or the government entities involved. 
you know, an exception would obviously be someone like what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida. But he got a lot of flack, including from Republicans for what he's done or from people, voices on the right, uh, sensibly, who say that, you know, this isn't something that he should be doing when it comes to uh, the Disney Corporation. What do you think about <clears throat> steps that Republicans ought to be taking to basically say to people who care about the culture war, we understand how important this is and we're going to start fighting it in real ways as opposed to just going on TV and basically doing the same job as a pundit. Right. Just saying, sending out a rage tweet. This is a perennial problem of Republicans, right? Is being the party of no. Yeah. Is just opposing, and it's, that's an important part of what Republicans do is stopping the radical left from destroying our nation. But it kind of goes back to f- the philosophy of liberty, doesn't it? Because the the reason so many Republicans, and it, it wasn't a majority of Republicans, it was a minority, maybe a vocal minority of Republicans who opposed what DeSantis did with Disney, um, even what DeSantis did with the the so called "Don't Say Gay" bill. But the the fundamental understanding of liberty when it comes to what the founders intended for our nation, the last couple of decades, we've defaulted to a more libertarian version of this, a John Lockean version of individual liberties are the thing. They're the pinnacle of this pyramid. And that if you're not actively harming, actively violating, really, someone else's individual liberty, then you should be allowed to do whatever you want, that there should be no morality at all. It should be a neutral playing field when it comes to state laws specifically. Of course, that doesn't quite apply to federal laws. But that's actually a misunderstanding of the founding of our country. The Declaration of Independence was founded in very John Lockean principles because Thomas Jefferson wrote it. But Thomas Jefferson was noticeably absent from the Constitutional Convention. And that is why the philosophy of Edmund Burke is actually the philosophy of our Constitution. Our nation was made for a moral people, as John Adams has said or said so famously. And Edmund Burkean philosophy on liberty, he talks about ordered liberty. Ordered liberty is not license. Ordered liberty acknowledges first principles, acknowledges that there is inherent good and bad, right and wrong. And the reason so many people maybe in our nation now don't want to acknowledge that is because in order to acknowledge the reality of right and wrong, good and evil, you have to acknowledge that there is someone who has ordered that, maybe someone with a capital letter, some creator that has ordered this. And Regardless of whether you want to acknowledge that, you and I know that that is the case, that that our nation was created by a creator, that right and wrong is endowed by a creator, that we are inherently endowed with these rights by our creator. And that version of liberty, this ordered liberty, it is upon that that our nation thrives. We will not be a successful nation in the long term if we embrace only libertarianism and we ignore the fact that there is a role for state governments to properly order society. I'm going to give you an alternate way of thinking about this. Maybe when we hear about sort of the, uh, you know, it's very common within uh, the critique of libertarianism uh, in, in its modern sense to say that, well, there's no nation that's like this and, and or, you know, only anarchic, you know, uh, sort of third world nations are like what you're talking about. But I actually think that, a big part of what the Tea Party was pushing for and a big part of the libertarianish language that was consistent uh, within that movement really was just taking us back, sort of a pre-New Deal version yeah. of the United States of America and one that sort of depend, you know, had a gold standard, <laughs> was, you know, was, was something that actually you know, had very small you know, federal government, was not invading our lives in so many ways. But there's something else that the, is kind of missing from that, which is – that also was a people 
that was deeply invested in faith, yes. in family bonds, in the importance of neighborhood and community. People would – I mean uh, one of my favorite things, uh, you know, I, I've gone to uh, visit, uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge's home. And I don't know if you know this, but, you know, the place that he was born – the place that he was sworn in as president by his own father in the middle of the night and the place, place that he is buried are all within about the size of a football field. Just gives you the okay. chills, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's like this This sort of says this is the way that people used to live. Yeah. You know? And now in this disaggregated, atomized uh, environment, you know, I, I saw this tweet earlier today from Matt Stoller, uh, one of my leftist friends, who it was talking about he was bemoaning kind of the – all these different trend lines that are going in bad directions, including, you know, drug overdoses, including suicide, including, um, you know, a family breakdown and community breakdown, all these different things. And but the first thing that he said was church attendance. Yeah. And it's like, well, you got the order right. You know, that 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 just it is this cascade that follows. And so to me, it's kind of like a libertarian society or one that is more libertarian than one that we have today, which is basically any time before, again, the New Deal. Uh, that would basically require you to have a different kind of value system that exists within America. I'd really like to get back to that. But until we do, that offer of big government is going to see, seem so tempting to people. How do we push back yeah. against that? I think my natural inclination to is – more towards libertarianism politically, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a practicing Christian, um, but I respect the idea of free will. I mean, really, as it was given to us biblically, mm-hmm. I would love to apply that politically to be like, well, you can choose to, you know, be bad or be good as long as you don't hurt anyone. We've just learned from our society over the last decades that that doesn't work. That you can't just say do whatever you want on your own property and it won't impact other people in a society and that it's functional how we get back to what we were restore the i guess the religiosity is what you're really talking about right of the people is through the family unit yeah i mean i know that that how many how many decades have politicians been saying this they don't mean it when they say it because they haven't done anything materially to impact the family unit but the only way that we restore that that desire not to have people reliant on big government, but to be reliant on themselves and their communities and their families is to actually promote and encourage and reward marriage between one man and one woman, uh, married a husband and wife that stay married, that raise their children, that wait until marriage to have children and that that operate as as when I say an autonomous unit, none of us are autonomous, right? But autonomous compared to a dependence on big government. The, there are things the federal government and certainly state governments can do to encourage and reward and educate people about marriage. And this is this is one of the ways that I I myself determine whether a politician on the right is a squish or whether that whether they are ideologically sound is what they do and propose when it comes to marriage. So many Republicans are so afraid to talk about that. They're afraid that the left is going to hurl accusations of being homophobic or a bigot or, you know, taking women back to the 1950s or whatever the talking point of the day is. But truthfully, politicians who understand that the limited government structure of our federal government cannot exist if people are reliant on the federal government. Understand that the that the alternative to that is a strong family unit. One of the things that um, I just the other day I saw uh, shared around was this uh, a graph, a horrible graph um, that shows the the breakdown of 
um, uh, of uh, maternal death, basically, you know, that women in the process of, of, of giving birth, dying or dying soon thereafter, um, where, you know, the U S is really stands out as being terrible in mm-hmm. terms of its uh, statistics among developed nations. Of course, when you break it down, it's overwhelmingly black mothers who are actually the people who are mm. dying the most in this scenario. So it's, it actually is Hispanic and then white and then this huge increase to mm. black Americans. And the article that was about it was written from a leftist perspective, but it was saying, well, you know, uh, a big part of this is the lack of resources and the lack of, of government uh, prenatal uh, funding. And uh, a big part of it is that 11 states still, still haven't expanded Medicaid under Obamacare. And to me, it's just like you're just you think you can throw more money at this problem and ignore all of the different social factors yeah. that are contributing to that. It, at this point, it has to be willful ignorance, right? They can't be that stupid to think that just more money is going to solve this. I, I mean, I think it would work. You'd have to work really hard to convince yourself that, yes, all we need is just one more dollar. And that's going to be the difference between it. Just It's it, a tragic it's statistic. It makes me sad as a mom. I mean, well, we're sitting in New York City right now where there are more black babies aborted, as we all know, than are born oh, year to year. Breaks my heart. Which has been true for a very long time, sadly. Um I want to ask you about what you do. You obviously are someone who is not just a pundit. You actually care about this stuff. You really do deeply care about it personally. You want things to change. You're not just someone standing on the sidelines, you know, calling out what's happening on the field of play. How do you assess success from your perspective in doing what you're trying to do? Yeah, that's it's an interesting question. I was actually having this conversation with my husband just last week because <laughs> I was I was saying the way that I view it is my vocation is being a mom to my daughter and a wife to my husband. That's my top priority. My my mission in life is to help my husband be holy and get this little soul that has been entrusted to me, my daughter back to heaven. That is my path. That's the only pass fail in my life. The rest of what I do I consider to be a calling. I feel called to fight for my nation in the way that I am best fit. Clearly, I'm not fit for military service as so many heroic people are. But this is the way that I can serve my nation to use the gifts and talents that God has given me specifically, whether that is, you know, the characteristics that maybe drove my mom nuts when I was when I was little being skeptical and questioning and opinionated. And, and speaking up for those who don't have a voice and untangling the web of lies that the left is throwing at us, doing the research. One of the things that I like the best doing on my show is not just commenting on the story of the day, the, the comment of the day, the tweet of the day, but untangling what's behind this, what's underneath this, who's propagating this, where does it come from? Because if we don't understand, this is my favorite line, I'll repeat it a billion times. If we don't understand the political enemy that we're facing, we won't be able to fight back. Um, and, you know... It's not always fun. A lot of times it's fun. I love what I do. But it's hard work fighting the cultural battles, right? Especially in a Republican establishment that doesn't always want to fight the cultural battles. But if we don't if we don't fight those, then where are we going to be as a country? You know, that I mean, that's a, a strong answer. But I think that for a lot of Americans who don't have the opportunity to do this via their vocation, they end up becoming very frustrated. Yeah. Um they and these are the kinds of people who you know, come up to me if they recognize me, I'm sure they come up to you and say they're frustrated about the direction of the country. 
you know, whatever the issue is that they're talking about, whether it's schools, whether it's, you know, the, uh, the transing of stuff, people are still using the word woke, but I think that we need to come up with a better phrase because <laughs> it does not in any way encapsulate, I think the degree to which, um, uh, the left is trying to warp human behavior. Yeah. Um, but basically what they'll say is, I don't know what I should do. And so what do you say to that question to the person who basically says, Hey, Liz, I can't do what you do, but I want to be a better help. And I can't just give to my local politician anymore or do any of this other stuff. What what am I supposed to do? I do get asked this question all the time. And what I say is the the most important thing for every person. This this includes you and I, regardless of our careers, right? is to invest in your family. That what I said about my vocation is true of every person. The reason that we fight for our country is to fight for our right to raise our families and worship the God that we choose the way that we want. Mm-hmm. And so invest in your families, invest in your marriage. That is a bulwark against Marxism in our country. Invest in your children. Make sure that you're involved in their education and their religious upbringing. Don't be afraid to parent. Take that phone away. Limit television. Do family things. Raise these children to be the next generation of leaders in our country, whether it's in government, whether it's in business, whether it's moms and dads raising raising kids, raising your grandchildren. Um, invest first in your family. And then there is an opportunity for every person, no matter how much money you have or don't have, no matter how old you are or young you are, no matter what your skill set is, there's an opportunity for you to get involved in school board races, to, you know, go door to door knocking. There's um, the Moms for Liberty organization. That's one I've been talking about a lot recently. They have chapters in almost every city in our country where you, even if you have no other political involvement in your history, you can go to their chapter and they will tell you all about the school board, the superintendent and the policies in your district and tell you what you can do to help change those. That's an incredible thing. Don't be afraid to talk to your family and your friends about um, about these political issues. I know it can be fraught with tension. Do it casually, calmly, generously, and, and firmly and talk to people. And you'd be surprised at the seeds that you plant, how they will bear fruit. Uh, one more question on this before we wrap up. I I know that there's kind of this split that exists right now uh, between – I think a lot of very dedicated conservatives uh, and believers who who think that our culture, meaning our pop culture, has become so corrupt and so corrupting that they need to disengage from it. That, you know, cancel your subscriptions, don't go to the movies. You know, even people who said, you know, during kind of the, the height of the post-Floyd stuff, you know, don't watch football and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. I have a different opinion, uh, which is that, you know, first off – there's no reason to concede the field to the left when it comes to these things. We are consumers too. In fact, in a lot of cases, we're the majority of cons- of consumers of a lot of these products. You know, you want to tell me that the average Disney Plus subscriber, you know, is super invested in the kind of, you know, woke agenda that they've been pushing? You know, well, look at what happened when they put out this strange world, you know, movie you yeah. know, the other day. It just fell on its face. So – to me, part of this is kind of reclaiming those spaces and and doing so in a way that says, no, if you go down this road, we're going to send you signals that we don't want you to do that. We want to be able to have these things be things that we can share as Americans and have a common culture together uh, and not, you know, 
have a situation where Top Gun Maverick comes out and we don't go see it. That was because... actually a good movie. Did you see it? <laughs> yeah, I watched it on a plane the other day. Oh I never know about sequels like that. It was good. You watched it on a plane? Yeah. No, you watched it on IMAX, man. There's, uh, there, were, there, there were old, you know, there were bald men who saw the first one when they were 55 crying and saying they were back. Oh, my gosh. That. That's hilarious. Um, what do you think about that argument? Because I think that there's, there's a case to be made on both sides. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that there's a case to be made on both sides. I think when it comes to children, I can tell you what I'm doing as a parent, mm-hmm. and that is I will not expose my child to media, whether it's movies, whether it's shows, even children's books now at libraries. I mean, libraries have the drag queen story hours, right? I will not expose my child to any kind of quote-unquote entertainment that's meant to corrupt her, mm-hmm. right? I will dedicate my life to I still consume this stuff partially because some of it I find entertaining, but partially because I need to know what the cultural influence that is influencing the younger generation is so that I can counter it. I think too, I used to be of a very, I used to have a different mindset on this. I used to think that boycotts were, were kind of pointless and stupid that, you know, maybe your political activism is a little bit more valuable than, than, you know, finding out what every corporation donates to. And I've changed my mind on this because of the level of, corruption, the level of wokeness that exists in so many of these corporations. And I now think that if you have the capacity to do it, use your money as a vote. Mm-hmm. Use Before you threaten to cancel something, coordinate a mass email campaign, a mass Twitter campaign where you are telling this corporation, we are your customers. You are supposed to serve us because we are, we're meeting in this marketplace. You're supposed to provide a product. We pay you for it. There's supposed to be mutually beneficial, this mutually beneficial contract. If it's not mutually beneficial, we will sever this contract. That actually does make a difference mm-hmm. to consumers or not, or to companies when consumers do that. So I advocate for people to definitely make their voices heard when it comes to this. And if it, if it, if it, crosses a line if it crosses a line like balenciaga yeah. where where it's <laughs> like line. how can you get more evil than that truly then no i mean you shouldn't participate in in that kind of popular culture you should just burn that <laughs> metaphorically to the ground the way i put it is or the way i think about it is we're always going to have and this is something that i, I say repeatedly we're always going to have an elite you're never going to be able to yeah. get rid of an elite what you should do is demand a better elite demand better performance from the elite and demand more responsiveness from them. So you're always going to have a class of people who are wealthy or powerful or, you know, in these different positions, uh, you know, in American life, we need a better class of them. And that's true of whether it's, whether it's the conservative movement, uh, it's true, whether it's the elite of industry, it's true, whether, you know, it's these big corporations and the like, we should demand better behavior from them. We certainly should. I mean, this would probably be a topic for a whole other podcast, but it's uh, it's it is increasingly difficult for consumers to impact corporate behavior. It was maybe easier 20 years ago, but it's more difficult now because of the ESG rating system, yes. um, because corporations aren't making business decisions based just on their profit interest, based on serving their shareholders and their employees and their customers. They're making it based on that woke ESG rating. So we have to destroy that before we can, as consumers, make an impact on woke behavior from corporations. But, I mean, I'm up for the fight if you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I doubt they'll be asking you to replace Tiffany Cross, though. <laughs> Unlikely. I'm, I'll let you know if I get such an email. <laughs> Liz Wheeler, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you for having me. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. 
So I wanted to offer a little bit of perspective on the decision made by uh, Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona to uh, go down the road of becoming an independent. This is something that I think surprised a lot of people who weren't from uh, Arizona, uh, people certainly on the national stage who have seen cinema exercise uh, enormous significance within the Democratic coalition in the Senate, alongside, of course, Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And, of course, she has also been someone who uh, is infamous for getting under the skin of a number of progressives, given the positions that she has taken, which are often contrary to progressive priorities. Cinema is someone who's very interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, back in the day, uh, 20 years ago, she was known as being kind of a rabble rousing, what she called a Prada socialist, someone who, uh, you know, was an, a very vociferous anti-war activist and the like. But she also had an interesting experience early in her career where she took a position at odds with a number of progressives on issues related uh, to gay rights in Arizona. And uh, when she basically took this position that was essentially more moderate in order to achieve something more permanent, it established her approach uh, that she's had really throughout her career, which is to say she believes that in order for policies to be permanent, they need to be bipartisan. That unless you have an, uh, a significant buy-in from the other side, uh, that things won't stick around and that when power changes, uh, the policies of the prior administrations uh, and, uh, and legislative majorities will go away. Because of this, uh, she has really insisted on adopting this approach when it comes to a number of key votes on Capitol Hill. But she is also someone who votes 93% of the time uh, with Joe Biden, with his priorities. Uh, so to say that she is in some way uh, a, you know, anything other than a liberal would be wrong. She is a liberal. She just has some centrist inclinations, especially when it comes to the business of politics. She's certainly more uh, to, further to the left uh, than someone like Joe Manchin, who could conceivably be a Republican. In fact, prior to the retirements of a couple of the last uh, uh, members in uh, in the Senate, uh, you could see his voting record being to the right of a couple of Republican members. Uh, but one of the things that I think we need to keep in mind here is that uh, the practical nature of politics is really what drives decisions like these far more so than uh, anything uh, in terms of ideological expression. Uh, cinema may be described as independent-minded, uh, but she is effectively a Democrat in the same way that Angus King is effectively a Democrat and Bernie Sanders is effectively a Democrat. They may put an independent uh, uh, sort of distinction after their name. They may call themselves something other than a Democrat, but they are effectively a Democrat. Republicans don't seem to have this same kind of approach. They tend to turn against people who uh, may uh, adopt an independent label of some kind. Uh, they don't seem to want them in their conference historically, certainly in the last 20 years or so. And I think that in this case, what cinema uh, is clearly doing is making a bet on her own future. Uh, after the election, the re-election of Mark Kelly uh, to the other Senate spot, in Arizona over Blake Masters, um, and after the defeat of Carrie Lake in the gubernatorial race, it seems very clear that running statewide in Arizona is better for you if you are a Democrat. However, Lake was only defeated by less than 20,000 votes. And you also can see that in a state where, uh, you know, a third effectively of the electorate is registered as independent, uh, that someone like Cinema is seeing a way to keeping her job. 
Effectively, what she's done by naming herself as an independent is to avoid a very fractious and expensive primary uh, against a further left uh, member in uh, Ruben Gallego, who has already been making noises about uh, running uh, for this office. Uh, if she was in a situation where she had to beat Gallego in a primary, uh, that would be very difficult and expensive. Instead, by running as an independent, Cinema can also can push, position herself in such a way uh, that she will appeal to both Democrats who are still loyal to her, the independent electorate, the, the significant part of that uh, Arizona electorate, as I said, uh, and a handful of Republicans who probably like the way that she has approached the job. And it allows her to skip uh, the primary that she would have had to run in uh, in order to uh, beat a further left candidate who would get a ton of progressive cash flowing into his race uh, in order to, uh, you know, it, even if he wasn't able to beat cinema, knock her around quite a bit uh, along the way to the nomination. This is a strategic move, in other words. It's not ideological as much. Uh, and I think that we should understand that as strategy, this is actually a wise uh, approach to uh, to the way that you deal with a political electorate that is uh, that is hacked up in the way that the uh, electorate is in Arizona. It's something that I think uh, stands to cinema's credit because there are not a lot of people who she talks to in the media. There are not a lot of people who she's close with. But to the degree that she is close uh, with certain members, she's close with former Representative Tulsi Gabbard. She's close with, uh, you know, a handful of Republican members as well. And I think that one of the things that is emerging from this is that she's not just someone who is ideologically interesting. She's also someone who can be strategic and pick the right moment to make significant decisions, ones that in this case probably make it likelier that she'll be able to keep her job. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. It's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.